Well, if you want, you can open your Bibles to Haggai chapter 1. And if you're not in a community group and you're wondering where Haggai is, just go to Matthew and start working your way back. You'll hit Malachi, Zechariah, and then Haggai. If you hit Zephaniah, you've gone too far. As I get older, it seems that I focus on a lot of anniversaries and dates as to what's in the past. This being the year 2007 is the 20th anniversary of my graduation from Moody Bible Institute. I would have loved to have gone to the reunion, but they forced me to go to a board meeting, so I missed that one. This is for all you... Oh, none of the board members are here, are they? Oh, no, Young's still here. Um, But one of the biggest things, I would say, in some ways that I've learned at Moody Bible Institute was something that Dr. Sweeting said over and over and over again. He stressed that as he was president of Moody Bible Institute, that they wanted to keep the main thing the main thing. So he would always say, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And then he would tell us what the main thing was, which was to know God better and to make him known. Or in another way, if you want to say it, to love God and to love others. That was his thrust. And what he wanted us to understand as students and what he wanted to have the faculty understand as well is that there are certain priorities, important things that God has given to us that stay priorities throughout our lives. So Moody Bible Institute for 120 years is known as a Bible college that sends out pastors, youth pastors, missionaries all over the world because the philosophy has stuck to keep the main thing the main thing. What happens when you begin to invert or lose your sense of priorities? Well, you end up with a Harvard or a Princeton or a UFC. All places that started out as seminaries, but today aren't even known for seminaries at all. And so that lesson that Dr. Sweeting wanted to impress upon us was something that he wanted us to carry to the churches that we would end up administering to. Keep the main thing the main thing. Now, when we look at Haggai, we're going to look at a group of people who have lost their sense of priority. Their priorities have become inverted. And hopefully by the end of today, you're able to consider your ways, as Haggai would call the people, and begin to get back to those things that God has called you to do. Now, I don't know if you in any way, shape, or form have grasped the chronology of what's gone on here in the book of Haggai. But to just kind of put it simply... In 536 B.C., the people returned after several decades in captivity. And as they've come back, about 50,000 people have returned to Jerusalem. Their main goal, the main thing that they wanted to do was to rebuild the temple. Not just for the sake of rebuilding the temple, but as an expression of worship, showing that God's favor has been upon their lives. God had promised that when they spent 70 years in captivity, he would bring them back and in bringing them back would restore the nation. And so what you have here are 50,000 people who are excited about the possibilities of what God is going to do in their lives and their nation as they head back. Which makes me say this first thing. 
that spiritual fervor or spiritual fire or spiritual passion fades quickly if not reignited, to kind of keep with our theme. Let's read just the first few verses here in Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains in ruin? Well, what's going on here is pretty simple. In 536, the Persian king, Cyrus, has said, All of you who are Jews and want to go back to your home, feel free to do so. And so there's a sense of excitement because it means that God's favor is being shown on his people again. And so again, these 50,000 people decide this is a good thing and we're going to move back. Now, not only are they having the opportunity to move back, but as they're packing and loading their things, they get a gift from the king. The king is looking in the treasury of the Babylonians that he has now conquered, and he notices all of these goods, and he recognizes that they belong in the temple in Jerusalem, and he says, here, here is a gift for me. Not only am I giving you your freedom, but I'm giving you a lot of money, a lot of goods to go back and worship your God. The 50,000 people have to recognize that God's favor is upon them. But still, even as they're packing, if you were to read in Ezra, their neighbors come alongside of them and their neighbors are giving them goods. And they're saying, here, this is God's favor. So, so when you go back to the land, enjoy worshiping God. So you have a group of people who are definitely serious and excited about going back home. And the thing about living in Babylon at this time, it would have been a very settled atmosphere. They've been there for 50 to 70 years, depending on when they came. They would already have their homes. They probably have careers. They've settled down. Everything is going pretty good while they're there. They're protected. There are no fears of being conquered in any way, shape, or form. They're basically insulated from the difficulties and pains of life. They have everything. Now they have the opportunity to move. I was thinking last week of Randy and Winnie as they're getting ready to head off to California. And I didn't realize that they've been here for 10 years. And to pick up, leaving this church after 10 years, and move to California, to me, is a pretty astounding thing. The, the idea that here it is comfortable, here it is settled, here it is good, but there's more. And, and in looking for more, they've now moved out to California, where there's going to be a lot of earthquakes and all those other kind of fun things. But they're moving out there with the sense of hope that something good is going to happen. This is a, a good career move for Randy. It's the opportunity to be among family, all of those good things. But it's a little different for these 50,000 people. You see, even though God's favor is upon them and they're richly blessed, they are not going back to a place where they're going to be welcomed. They're going to be surrounded by nations that hate them. They're going to be surrounded by nations that will do as much as they possibly can to interfere with the work of God in their lives. So there's an unsettled situation that they're heading into, and yet because of that, there's a fire in their hearts knowing that God is with them because God has given them so many blessings already, even before they've left the land. And so they head off. 
Now, this is an 1,100-mile journey, which back then, if you're averaging 20 miles a day, is a lot of time on the road, on camels. But when they arrive, there's a sense of joy, and they begin to rebuild the temple, and they lay the foundation, and everything is great. And so when they have laid this foundation, there's a sense of worship, and some people are crying because they remember what the old temple is like, and others are crying because they've experienced freedom. There's joy, there's excitement that's going on, and then they face opposition. And in the midst of this opposition, after rebuilding just the foundation, not the temple itself, the people stop rebuilding the temple. And so this building project that starts in 536 B.C. doesn't get restarted until 16 years later in 520 B.C. And that leads me to say that spiritual fervor or fire or passion fades quickly if not constantly reignited. Because what's going on in their lives? They have seen the special favor of God. If we go back to Randy and we see that Randy gets his pay tripled and and we see that he's going to this nice place with his family and everything is going to be great and that the opportunity to see God's hand of favor on his life and his family is multiplied incredibly by the great opportunities that he's going to have out there to go there five years later and see that they have stopped doing what God has called them to do, we might be a little bit disappointed. God here is looking at these people. He has promised to restore them. He has brought them back to the land in order to rebuild the temple. And what is their response after all this time? They say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. That sense of fire and passion has disappeared from their lives. Now, I was thinking about it this week. And I was thinking about what it was like for me when I first became a follower of Christ. And I can remember the excitement and the joy for someone who grew up in a religious family. Reading the Bible suddenly became something that was interesting and and exciting. Being able to turn away from temptation and say, you know what? It's not as cool as knowing Jesus. And reflecting then 24 years later, how is it that I've changed? I would like to say that in some ways my faith has matured. But when I say that my faith has matured, what I'm really saying is, My faith has now become a rut. That spiritual passion that I felt when I first started following Christ has begun to fade. I'd like to say, you know what, I know the extremes and I know what it's like to be really high and and really low. And now my faith is just kind of steady and mature. But a lot of times when we're saying that our faith is mature, what we're saying is we've stopped having faith in a God who does big things. You see, the people here in Haggai's time stopped having faith in this God who had done these big things in their lives. They were released from captivity. They were given a tremendous amount of money and goods to come and rebuild the temple. And then when they faced this opposition, they stopped believing. They could say, our faith has matured. We've become mature in the way we follow God, and we understand that it's not easy. But listen, we still have faith, and we still do the things that we're supposed to do, but that's not what God called them to. God called them to do something bigger than themselves, to take that risk, and to show that they really had the faith to trust that God could do what he actually said. So their spiritual fire, their spiritual passion, their spiritual desire faded away, and it faded away quickly when they faced opposition. How do our priorities get inverted? Their priority was pretty simple. Go back, 
and rebuild the temple as God had called them to. Well, it says here in verse 2, it's very simple. Our priorities get inverted when we delay God's will. Let's read it again. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. In other words, God is saying, listen, here's your excuse that you're using. It's not time to rebuild the temple. But God then asks this question. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains in ruin? Now, how many of you grew up with homes that had paneling in the basement or paneling somewhere in the house? How many of you? Paneling back in the 70s and the 80s was kind of cool. Maybe not so today with all the special stuff that you had. But when you had paneling in the basement, you had arrived. If you know what I mean. I mean, some of you, uh, 20 years ago, you probably weren't even here when I'm graduating from Moody Bible Institute. 25 years graduating from high school. 30 years next year graduating from grade school. Some, how many, anybody under 30 here? To realize that I'm graduating eighth grade and you weren't even born yet astounds me. I won't say anything. <laughs> anyway, paneled houses. You know, and back, back then it was like, wow, that is really cool. Paneled houses. Or paneled stuff in the, in the basement, the, the, the uh, walls. Really interesting and, and neat. So what is going on here is, is pretty simple. The people are saying, you know what? We don't have enough time. We don't have resources. We can't rebuild the house of God. We need to get settled down in our own homes. And God, in, in, a, in a way, goes just, what? What do you mean that you don't have the resources? What do you mean that you don't have the time? Look at yourselves. And, he, and he's going to go later on. He's going to say, consider your ways. What has happened here is pretty simple. These people have taken the blessings of God and have inverted them towards themselves. And because they faced opposition and weren't willing to push through... They now were focusing on their own lives, building their own homes, and settling down. They were basically living in luxury, turning around and then saying, you know what, God, we just don't have time to rebuild this house like you're asking us to. We have other priorities. We have other things to do. And in a lot of ways, even 2,400 years later, as followers of Christ, the same excuse still stands. God says to us, I've called you to do this. Could be as a church, could be as an individual. And here's something that I want you to do. But our response is pretty simple. I'm sorry, God, but it's not the time just yet. I need to settle down. I, I, I need to get my kids off to college. I need to save for my retirement. I'm really busy right now, God, because I'm doing so many things at work and I'm overwhelmed by all of these projects. I just need a little time to relax and rest and, and become sort of human. And we keep saying, God, now is not the time to build your kingdom. When I get settled down, I'll take care of it. God does not accept that excuse. God speaks to us as he speaks to the people through Haggai and says, you are building your own kingdom and you've missed the priority that I have called you to. Now, what I want you to understand is the priority is not building the temple only. Think about this. It's not the building that matters to God because God couldn't fit in the building anyway. Here is a God who holds the universe in the palm of his hand. If you think God is saying, I cannot believe that these people have left me homeless, you've missed the point. The reason God brought 
them back to Jerusalem was to get back to a place of worshiping God for who he was. Because in Babylon, there are gods all over the place. And the freedom to worship without all those distractions is not there. So he brings his people to his special place and says, rebuild the temple. Make your priority. The main thing be the main thing, which is to worship me. So God's complaint is, you haven't rebuilt the temple. God's complaint is, you've stopped focusing on me. You've inverted your priorities and you're focusing on yourselves and worship has stopped. Now, it doesn't mean that the people weren't offering sacrifices. It doesn't mean that they weren't doing their religious rituals or experiences or whatever needed to be done to a point where they could say, we have faith. Or we have mature faith. We understand what it means to persevere in the midst of this persecution because we still believe. Those were not acceptable excuses to God. God had called them to worship. And because they did not rebuild the building, they were not worshiping in the way that God had called them to worship. So what happens? (coughs) Our priorities get inverted when we delay in doing God's will. These people delayed. And they put it off for 16 years. Now, the cool thing about God is this. He brings the prophet Haggai into their lives to remind them of their situation. Now, most prophetic books, when you think of a prophet speaking, if you're like me, you think of gloom and doom. Like Jeremiah. Okay, people, shape up, repent, get with it, because if you don't, we're going to get carried off into captivity. You read Isaiah. Oh, this is going to happen. It's going to be bad for these nations. The nations around us are going to be judged. God is going to bring judgment. But Haggai is a prophet of hope. And he's going to come and he's going to give positive message after positive message. Because God's purpose in speaking to us, God's purpose in correcting us or rebuking us is to reconcile excuse me, is to reconcile our relationship with him. What God is saying is, get back to rebuilding the temple that our relationship might be at a place where it is supposed to be, where worship, fellowship, and communion are supposed to be. But we delay that because we have our excuses. The thing about it is God does not accept our excuses. God speaks to us. God wants us to keep the main thing the main thing. What I find interesting about this and the attitude of the people is that when King David looked out one day and he saw the dwelling place of God was just a tent, it bothered him. It bothered him that while he was living in a castle, a luxurious place, that God had to live in a tent. And it wasn't necessarily the tent thing that bothered David. It was just a sense of God is so worthy. God is so valuable. God so deserves our best. And all we do is give him a tent. It would be in a way if I looked at my kids and I said, we have a nice house here, three bedrooms, but you know what? I want you guys to live on the trampoline. I'll put a nice little covering for you so you don't get too wet when it rains, but at least be grateful because you have a trampoline. David's attitude is, I cannot allow God to live there. And so he builds He begins to build. He doesn't build it himself, as son Solomon does, a temple that is worthy of God. Totally opposite of these people. What's really going on here is an attitude problem. These people have delayed in doing God's will because their priorities have been inverted. They're focusing on themselves. And yet God, in his goodness and his grace, says, you have a problem here. 
but let's fix it because God seeks reconciliation. Now, in my family, <clears throat> I like to play a game called No with my son, Tim. It's a very interesting game, and uh, it's probably a little bit warped, but I'm because you probably have learned I'm a little bit warped too. But Tim will ask for things, and uh, I say no. And uh, so he'll ask for something, no. Uh, can I have, no. And he'll say it a couple times, but then he gets a little smart, and he goes, can I not have this? In other words, so if I say no, then he can really have it. You know what I mean? But I'm smart enough to pay attention to that, and I'll say yes. And he gets frustrated, so then he says, so I can't have it? And then I'll say no. So we have this kind of thing where we go back and forth in what we're doing. So as he's speaking to me, I'm always saying no. And that reminds me of nothing like God, if that makes sense, which tells you how warped I can be. Because it makes me realize that when God and, and when we're reacting or interacting with God, God's desire is to give. And these people here aren't getting fully of what God wants to give to them because their priorities have become inverted because they're concerned that they're not going to get what they think they should get. They're not going to be settled or, dare I say, suburban in their faith and have everything going their way before they finally worship God. But God wants to reconcile with them. So he sends Haggai and he says, your priorities are messed up <coughs> because you have stopped obeying me. Now, how do our priorities get inverted? There's two ways. Slip down. <coughs> you don't have to get me water if you don't want to. <coughs> Okay, I'm just kidding. Can somebody give me some water, please? Usually, oh, there is here? Hey, there is. Wow, see, Cindy wasn't here. And uh, see, even in Kenya, she still comes through. That's her last week. Hey, there's something floating around in there. Oh, thank you. All right. How do our priorities get inverted? Uh, let's read on. Verses 5 and following. Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. See, there's a sense of discontentment. In other words, these people are doing a lot of things, but nothing is coming of it. If you put it another way, how does God get our attention when our priorities are inverted? In other words, what he's saying is here, you're putting a lot of time and effort and energy into making money and having nice houses and, and having nice clothes and eating a lot of food and all these good things. But you know what? When you make a lot of money, you feel that it's not enough. And isn't that a little bit scary today? Think about this. You get a raise this year at the beginning of the year and what happens? Electric rates go up. Gas rates continue to go up. I got a little notice in the mail that my property taxes are going to go up. It's like $11,000 difference. And I'm thinking to myself, why is it that we keep trying to get so far ahead? And every time you seem to get a little bit of a gap and you go, we can breathe, that the government comes along and says, we're raising this or we're raising that. It's kind of like what's going on here. These people are putting all this time and energy and effort into all of these things, and they never seem to get ahead. God is saying, that's my way of getting your attention. There's a sense of discontentment. A lot of times in ministry, <clears throat> when you're ministering to people or when you're ministering to your family and you don't see things happening the way you think you have, it's God's way of saying, 
found that something is missing in your lives. It's not always true. Sometimes that discontentment is there because God has created it so that you might hunger and thirst for him. But for these people, God is saying, look at your lives, consider your ways, think about what's going on, and then look back to me and see why this is happening. It doesn't make sense. They should be saying, God, you're supposed to be blessing us. And yet we don't seem to be blessed. We can't seem to get ahead. And I would say in today's culture, a lot of us are in that place and we don't understand why, but it's because God is saying, I want your attention and no longer are you keeping the main thing, main thing, but your priorities have become inverted. There's a second way in which it happens also. Let's keep moving on. Verse seven. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down the timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a rune, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labor of your hands. What's going on here is basically saying, God, I'm disciplining you. The terrible experiences that you have are there for a reason. It is because I have removed my presence from your midst, which is interesting. If you go back to verse two, what does God say? He says, these people, he doesn't say my people. In other words, a distance has happened and God has brought these bad things in their lives and said, hey, wake up. Consider your ways. Think about what's going on in your lives because the difficult times that you're going through are there for a reason. Now, it doesn't always mean that your priorities are inverted. When Job experienced difficulties, it wasn't because his priorities were inverted. His priorities were right on the money. If you're going through a difficult time, it may be true that your priorities are right on the money. But more often than not, when you go through these difficult experiences, God is trying to get your attention and saying, you're missing out on what I've called you to do. Now, I shared this with the Tuesday night group. I'm a pessimist. So when something bad goes wrong in our house, I often think, okay, God, what did I do wrong? So this winter, I think it was in February or March, our furnace went out. And uh, immediately my thought was, okay, God, what did I do wrong? So I called the first guy that we normally call who's honest. And uh, he didn't get the phone. So, oh, man, I can't believe this. I hope he's not on vacation in Florida. Called him another time. He didn't get the phone. But when you have a family at home and it's cold out, you have to call somebody else. So I called another guy whom I really didn't trust. But I called him anyway because you have to have heat in the house. And if the other guy is in on vacation in Florida, then I'm left a whole week without any heat whatsoever. So the guy comes and uh, he lays on the ground and he's looking at my furnace for about 10 minutes and he's just looking at it. And I'm looking at him and I'm praying, oh God, what have I done? What have I done that's so wrong because I'm about to get ripped off? And sure enough, it would cost like about $600 to get the furnace fixed and he still didn't fix it right. So I had to call the other guy to find out that he really wasn't on vacation anyway. He just was busy that day. And he looked at it and said, oh, the wires are crossed. Oh, man, that's it. So to me, my thinking pessimistically is when something bad happens in my life, it's because God is against me because I'm a pessimist. Many times 
God has withdrawn himself and his favor because he wants to get our attention, that there's priorities missing. Now, in this instance, the only thing that I could remember was this. At least I have the money to pay for it. There are a lot of people who don't have the kind of money that I have to be able to pay for this to happen. When my wife got a speeding ticket, I said, thank you, Lord, that money that we have. Came out of her allowance, so it's okay. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. It's not going to come out of her allowance. But sometimes when bad things happen in our lives, it's a way of just reminding us that God is in control. And there's nothing wrong with what you're doing. But I'd be willing to say that many of us, God is trying to get our attention, and he's saying, consider your ways. Your priorities are inverted. So while you're saving all of this money for that one day when you will do kingdom things, it's being wasted. And I want you to wake up and realize that as you continue to focus on yourselves, really all you're doing is carrying around a purse or a wallet that has holes in it. So when you drop a 50 in there, a $20 bill drops out and you only have 30 and you're not really getting anywhere. So please wake up. Because you're missing out on what I have called you to do. You're missing out on who I have called you to be. And what Haggai is really talking about with these people is revival. Because my guess is they are very comfortable with the worship that they have. They have an altar. They have a foundation. They're making sacrifices. They're praying like they're supposed to. But God says that's not enough. Not because God is a displeased, perfect parent who expects perfection from his children, but because God has called them to rebuild the temple and to make worship what it's supposed to be. And I think the unfortunate thing about many of us as we follow Jesus is that we expect God to make us comfortable before we move out in risk. Because when we move out in risk and it fails, we can come back to our comfortable. Where's the faith in that? There's no faith in that. That's just living the safe, comfortable life. It's not what God has called us to do. These people will face opposition. When Nehemiah and Ezra come some 50 or 60 years later, they're going to face opposition. When you want to serve God, you will face opposition. It's unfortunate, but in many ways we have this concept of power religion that if I just do what God wants me to do, everything will fall into place and it will be nice and neat and pretty and painless. That's not the way God works. When God begins to move, the enemy begins to move. And God wants these people to stop making excuses and to get their priorities to where they need to be and really worshiping God for who God needs to be worshipped for. So let me finish with this. Two things. How can we reorder our priorities? Verse 5. Give careful thought to your ways. Verse 7. Give careful thought to your ways. When someone says something twice, it's for emphasis. There's a reason why. Very similar when you have children. When you use their middle name, it's because you're trying to emphasize the fact that you are angry with them. So if I were to say, Christina, to my daughter, come here, that means things are pretty cool. But if I say, Christina Karras, you immediately know, time to pay attention. God is saying, consider your ways. Think about what is going on in your lives. You are working hard. 
You're working 60, 70 hours a week. And yet, if you just considered your ways, you would realize that you're not getting anywhere. You're like that hamster or that gerbil that is running and running and yet still going around and around and around and getting absolutely nowhere. Look at your lives. Consider your ways. Consider the blessings that you have. Consider all the things that you have and return to worshiping me as I am supposed to be worshiped. Keep the main thing the main thing. Allow me to be the priority of your lives because some things are falling apart in your life because I want you to get your attention back here. Consider your ways. The unfortunate thing about that is many of us don't really consider our ways because we don't have time to do so. The message I think that God would speak to his people everywhere in the world today is to slow down. It's not about speed. We may think it is about speed, but God works at a little bit different type of pace, a little bit slower because it's about process. And he says, come apart before you come apart. Slow down. Consider your ways. Think about what's going on. What are you doing? What are you building? How are you building it? Please stop. Now, I don't know about you, but I do know about myself that I like things to go fast. And sometimes sitting in Bible study, when it gets a little bit slow, you want to speed things up. But a process that people go through, it means you need to go slow. Sometimes sitting in board meetings, it needs to go a little. Maybe about two or three hours faster, which is okay because Pastor Dave's not here and no one's going to give him the CD to this. Right, Young? Good. There, there needs to be, you know, I like speed. I like things going fast. But how much does God really do in the midst of speed? Not that much. Because he calls us to slow down. It's probably bothering you right now that I paused for about four seconds. He wants us to slow down and consider our ways. God is not calling us to go wider. He's calling us to go deeper. Because in the depths of our soul is where God meets us. If you think you're going to meet God in a surface relationship, you have another thing coming. I don't even know what song that's from, but it just hit me. Is that Judas Priest? It is, I think, isn't it? You have another thing coming? Does anybody know? Uh, you guys probably don't even know who Judas Priest is other than, it is, right? Yeah, you have another thing coming. I almost feel like singing it right now. Oh, you got another thing coming. Anyway, so, <laughs> don't ask me where that came from, but now you know why I don't need worship. Consider your ways. Think about it. Come on, guys. As, as a church, when we stand before God, do you want God to say, man, you all did a lot. But it really didn't mean much. But, wow, you did a lot. I don't think any of us want to hear, oh, man, you built such a, a, a beautiful house, but its value wasn't really much. Consider your ways. The, the call that God has for these people in Haggai is to consider their ways, to think about it. You're doing so much, and it's useless. It's in vain. It's not worth it. Give it up. Stop for a minute. Consider your ways. Make the main thing the main thing. Get back to worshiping me. Get back to having faith. Faith, take that opposition. Face the opposition and move forward with faith. Stop giving me excuses because excuses are no good with God. 
You may think that you're fooling him, but he knows your heart. And he knows their heart, and their priorities are inverted. And he says, cut it out. Get your priorities straightened out. Consider your ways. Think about the ways in which you need to change. When I look back at myself and see the fire that I had when I was younger or when I was at at Moody, and I look at myself today and I say, I don't have that same passion. God is saying, get that passion. You know what really bothers me about old people? Is that the older they get, the more mature they think they are, and they lose that passion and they think that they've arrived. The most excited people about Jesus in the church should be the oldest people. Because they've seen the faithfulness of God for 50 or 60 years. But who do we look for when we get excitement in a church? We might look for the high school students because they're all excited. But what do we say? Oh, they're emotional. They're up and down. They're not stable and mature like us. We look at college students. We say the same thing. Maybe they're a little bit more mature, but they're still up and down. We look at somebody who's new to Christ and the excitement they have. And they'll go, what do we say? They'll learn. It'll be difficult. That joy will be gone. And we become grumpy. That's not what God has called us to. The more you follow Christ, the more excitement and joy there would be. So I would lay this before you as a challenge. If you have been following Christ and that passion's not there, that means your priorities are inverted. And God's call is to reignite that passion. Not to manufacture it in some way, but to get to a place where you get alone with God and you consider your ways and you say, God, I remember what it was like back then and I don't feel that anymore and it's not about feelings, but I know things have changed and I know that you're asking me to consider my ways and get excited about who you are and what you've done in my life. Consider your ways. The second thing is to act. Just do it. Do something. What happens with the people? Read here. Verse 12, then Zerubbabel and Joshua and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because their Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. In other words, they did something. They quit making excuses. And we're not going to read the rest of the verses, but it's basically about 23 days later that they begin to do something. And you might say, well, they still delayed for three and a half weeks. That's not the point. They had to get things all prepared and in order. But they obeyed. So, do you want to reignite that passion? Are you looking at yourself and saying, you know what, the main thing is no longer the main thing. It's about my career or my school or, or my spouse or my kids or my house or, or whatever it is. And I've missed out that what God has called me to. Because again, it's not about the building. It's not about the ritual. It's not about Sunday service. It's about God and what God wants to do in your life to expand His kingdom as you enter into worship with Him. And if you... Don't have that passion. The call is consider your ways. And after you've considered your ways and you see what needs to happen, what happens here with these people? God stirs them up because they obeyed. So here's my challenge this week. As you continue to think about Haggai and the people during Haggai's time is this. Where are you at? Where are you at in your life? Is the main thing the main thing Or have your priorities become inverted? God speaks to us today, not to beat us over the head, but because he wants to bring us to a place where we walk with him as his children, entering into worship. Let's pray. Father, there's so much more to cover. There's so much more here in just this first chapter. And yet... The call that you have for us. We're not rebuilding a temple. 
We don't even have a church building program. We don't even really need one. Because your call is not to a building or a place of worship, but your call is to meet a person in worship. And so, Father, we want to meet you in worship and ask for those of us whose hearts have grown cold or who have become mature in our faith and use that as an excuse for not being passionate, that you would forgive us. Instead, Father, ignite our hearts, stir our hearts, create in us a passion for real faith that takes risk, that trusts you, not foolish risks, but trust that what you have called us to do and who you call us to be are things that you have already in control. So, Father, we trust that you would stir our hearts and we want to obey you. And so in whatever areas, Father, that we have let our priorities slip away as we think and reflect and your spirit searches us and points out what needs to change, make it change. We do not want to be people who are mature in their faith with no passion. We want to be mature and passionate. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.